1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Cody, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a collaborative, a partnership between the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And today's program is titled Genomic Testing and Current Trends in the Treatment of Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. And this is part three of Living with Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Regeneron, Sanofi, Genzyme. Turning Point Therapeutics, Inc., and a grant from Genentech, and we thank them for their support of this entire series. And um, I would like to acknowledge all of you on the call today. There's over 150 participants on this program today. You come primarily from the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Iraq, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom, so it's a global call as well. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker and our first speaker is Dr. Xiao Luau, Dr. Luau is physician attending Thoracic Oncology Service, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, instructor in medicine, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Luau will be addressing an overview of non-small cell lung cancer and the role of precision medicine in the context of COVID-19, a definition of genomics and genomic testing, including the difference between genomics and genetics the role of genomic testing in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer, and specific examples of how genomic testing may inform treatment decisions. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Luau.
2: Hi there. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, for that uh, introduction. So my name is Jia Luo, um, and the first topic I will go over is a. Uh, overview of non-small cell lung cancer. So um, non-small cell lung cancer, as many of you already know, is a uh, very common solid tumor. Um, it, In the United States, which most of you are calling in from, um, there's over 200,000 individuals who are diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer a year. Um, And there were some recent uh, cancer statistics that were published in the past year um, that suggest that it is actually um, the most common form of cancer in women. Um, So it has suppressed suppressed, uh, breast cancer. Um, In terms of how to conceptualize non small cell lung cancer, it's a type of cancer that originates in the lung, um, and it generally has a pretty predictable uh, pattern Uh, of where it goes to. So it starts in the lung um, and then it will move to the lymph nodes in the center of the chest. Um, So you can think of your lymph system as parallel highways to your bloodstream. Um, And that's just the way that this type of cancer um, spreads. And then it can go to other organs. And some uh, sites that we are always looking for are um, adrenal glands, which are little organs sitting on top of your kidneys. Um, the bone, um, the brain, um, and the liver. And so um, when you first visit um, your medical oncologist, um, so that's someone who, like me, gives recommendations for um, what are called systemic treatments for non-small cell lung cancer, so systemic means either a pill or um, IV medicine, Um, that doctor is going to want to know Um, where the location of the cancer is. And so those are sites that we generally look at with um, scans and also laboratory tests. Um, In terms of the second piece, which is the role of precision medicine. So besides um, asking where is the cancer, we also want to know what kind of uh, lung cancer it is. And specifically within non-small cell lung cancer, there's two major subtypes. um, And those are squamous cell cancer and adenocarcinoma. Um, And so besides knowing that you have non-small cell lung cancer, it is important to know um, beyond non-small cell lung cancer, do I have squamous? Do I have adenocarcinoma or do I have a different subtype? Um, And then the meaning of precision medicine to me um, includes both um, knowing the subtype, but then also what is the right um, treatment Based on the subtype, and then the doc, your doctor should also integrate your um, sort of goals and, and wishes as well in that decision making. And so um, now we're able to um, treat lung cancer with different. Depending on your subtype, we're able to treat it differently. And so that's that's where precision medicine comes into play. And not only is the the treatment different, um, but also the duration of treatment um, varies from person to person. Um, So I'll go into that in a little more detail in a bit as well. Um, And then uh, this last portion that I was going to cover initially is how to think about this all in the context of COVID-19. I think the pandemic is changing um, constantly, and it's different depending on, um, you know, what region of the United States you're in and also um, globally. And so I think um, speaking with your personal healthcare provider is really important. Um, For example, here um, in like Boston, um, recently our COVID numbers had increased slightly. um, And so in general, we would recommend that everyone um, get vaccinated, um, and then also have at least one booster shot. And then um, the decision on whether you should get a second booster shot should be something that you discuss um, with your healthcare provider. And I think um, overall the, the big um, take-home is I think because having lung cancer and compromised lungs does put you at a higher risk. Of um, getting an infection and also getting sick with the infection is definitely something um, worth talking to your doctor about, and you know where you should mask and um, how you should deal with different social uh, situations. Um, if you're on treatment, what sorts of medicines are you on? I think that um, dictates um, what what your doctor would recommend um, for you specifically. Um, but I think overall. Um, I had done some work early in the pandemic um, when I was in New York and we were the epicenter. And in general, we did a study that, that found that um, it is very important to continue to see your uh, lung cancer team because um, of the, the serious nature of lung cancer. It's important to keep seeing your doctors and, and then they can kind of think about um, the treatment in the context um, of the pandemic. Um, all right, so um, talking a little bit more about the precision medicine piece and um, genomics and genomic testing. So um, so besides the location of the cancer, um, the, one of the things that your medical oncologist want, will wanna know is not just the, the type of lung cancer, the non-small cell, but also the subtype, which we talked about, adenocarcinoma versus squamous cell. Um, but then even further, Um, what is the actual mutation that is driving your cancer? Um, And what that means is it's actually um, changes within the DNA um, of the cancer cells that are causing the cancer cells to grow. Um, And to do that, um, what happens is you uh, will have either had um, or will have uh, what's known as a biopsy. And when people think about a biopsy, they usually think about, Um, you know, getting a procedure. Um, And Dr. Zabari, um, in his uh, section, will also talk about um, something called a liquid biopsy. Um, But I guess either of these tests, essentially what we're looking at is what is the exact mutation um, that your non-small cell lung cancer has. Um, And this is generally done um, by one of two tests. Um, that you might see on a pathology report. One is called immunohistochemistry or IHC um, and the other one is called DNA sequencing Um, and that's actually looking at what is the specific mutations within the cancer cells themselves and now um, in 2022 we have over 10 different types of um, DNA changes that we're looking for and ones that you might have heard of which are more common are um, something called EGFR, um, another one called KRAS, K-R-A-S, and another one called ALK, um, A-L-K, but these are all um, genes uh, within your DNA um, that have changed specifically in the cancer cells that are causing the cancer cells to grow. Um, And the... When, when I think of the word genomics versus genomic testing versus genetics, um, I guess the big thing to separate out is which of these things are hereditary versus which are things um, that happen because um, of being alive and being exposed to um, you know, the environment, aging, things like that. So um, for the most part, non-small cell lung cancer is not hereditary as in um, you do not have changes within your genes that you would pass on to a future family member and there's nothing a family member who's related to you would have to do differently. Um, and so some of the times these words um, get used differently um, by different people but the, the big take home is that um, In general, this is not a hereditary condition um, aside from very few individuals. And those specific individuals um, who um, have, let's say, you have multiple family members with lung cancer or you have multiple family members with um, cancer in people who are younger than age 50 when they were diagnosed with the cancer, that might be something that you should bring up to your doctor. Um, But beyond sort of those general groups of individuals, um, we generally do not think of non-small cell lung cancer as a hereditary condition. Um, And so in terms of the testing that we are doing, such as for EGFR or ALK, um, it's just to look at mutations in the cancer itself. So these mutations such as EGFR are um, generally not in your normal cells. Um, and then the next thing um, that I'm gonna speak about is the role of genomic testing um, in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. So the reason we have to go through this, this um, testing is it actually helps um, your medical oncologist decide on the type of treatment um, that would be best for your uh, lung cancer. So that precision medicine um, piece that I was speaking about earlier, um, and so essentially, the this uh, genomic testing for non-small cell lung cancer it takes um, between, I would say, three days up to um, four or five weeks, depending on the specific test, um, to get the result. And the reason there's a wide range is that um, after you have a biopsy, the actual cancer itself needs to undergo um, either this immunohistochemistry or DNA sequencing, and that takes time. Um, and it also takes um, doctors to review the, the answers very carefully. Um, you know, if you have uh, DNA sequencing, an actual um, doctor known, known as a molecular pathologist actually goes over. Um, all of the, all of your, you know, DNA that was sequenced and have to identify the actual um, EGFR or other mutation that you have. have. So it just um, takes a bit of time. And for some people, um, the, the testing um, can be identified quickly through immunohistochemistry. And for others, um, it might take what's called um, panel um, Next generation sequencing. And so there are these tests um, that um, exist at certain institutions or laboratories where they're looking at, you know, 400 cancer associated genes and what are the mutations um, within um, those genes that are associated with your cancer. So um, ultimately, um, there are around uh, 10 or so. Uh, mutations that we are looking for um, in non-small cell lung cancer. And um, if you have one of those mutations, um, it makes us think about giving a a treatment that targets um, that mutation. And generally, um, that treatment is a pill, um, although some of the medicines are uh, given via IV. So um, basically, I think if um, you're able to um, wait, and that depends on, you know, your doctor's evaluation of your general health, uh, we generally recommend waiting, um, you know, those several weeks before all of this data comes back because it allows us to be a little more precise in deciding the treatment for um, non-small cell lung cancer and so, I think I'll end with um, giving a specific example of how um, genomic testing can inform treatment decisions. Um, so, for example, I'll just give the most common example. Um, let's say you um, get the biopsy, you have non-small cell lung cancer, the subtype is adenocarcinoma, and through the sequencing you have a KRAS G12C mutation. Um, then your medical oncologist may say, oh, there's now an FDA-approved pill called um, Sodoracib that could help you. And so um, that's super important. Um, And then also it can open up the ability of being a participant in clinical trials, which sometimes gives you even additional treatment options. And so your doctor might say, oh, actually, um, not only could we give you the standard pill, but we have a good clinical trial based on other features of your lung cancer um, that we think would be an even better medicine to to try. So I think um, the genomic testing piece in 2022 and non-small cell lung cancer is extremely important. All right. So with that, I will hand it over um, to Dr. Messner and Dr. Sabari.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Luna. That was really wonderful. Just a really a um, stellar presentation, very comprehensive, and actually setting the stage for today's program. So thank you so much. Um, thank you very, very much for that wonderful presentation. Um, and our next speaker is um, Dr. Joshua Sabari. And Dr. Sabari is attending physician, thoracic medical oncology, assistant professor of medicine, NYU Langone Health, Promotic Cancer Center. And Dr. Sabari will be addressing current research on genomics, including liquid biopsies, the role of the pathologist, reviewing your pathology report with your pathology pathologist and your healthcare team, key questions to ask your healthcare team about genomic testing and its benefits for your treatment, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sabari.
3: Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Really appreciate it. And I want to thank the Longevity Foundation and the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop uh, for having me and giving the opportunity to talk with you today. So just really building on uh, Dr. Lowe's presentation, uh, when someone is diagnosed with a lung cancer, it's critical to understand the stage of the cancer, meaning where it started in the lung, and has it spread anywhere in the body. And, you know, we'll really focus today on stage four, meaning the cancer started in the lung and learned how to travel through the blood to other places of the body, such as the liver, for example, or the bone or the brain. And we know that in those situations, uh, the treatment or the, the cancer itself is treatable, but it's not curable, meaning we can't get rid of it completely. And then the goal, of all treatments that we talk about are really to keep the cancer under control, hopefully for a very long time, and to have really good quality of life. And when we talk about stage four disease, we really need to think about systemic treatment. So understanding the stage of the cancer is really one of the critical pieces in the early diagnostic period. Another thing that Dr. Lill mentioned that's critical is understanding the histology, or what the cancer looks like under the microscope, because there are multiple different subtypes of lung cancer. There's small cell lung cancer, which is uniquely different than non-small cell cancer. And even within non-small cell lung cancer, we heard that there are different subtypes. There's adenocarcinoma, as well as a squamous uh, cancer. And the reason that's so important is the treatments really differ. Uh, they're different with different histologies. And you know, going back to 2014, 2015, Most of our treatments were chemotherapy alone, and most of the decisions we made were based upon what the histology was. Thankfully, we've made a lot of advances over the last, I would say, five or 10 years in that we now have targeted therapies, and we'll talk a lot about targeted therapies today, and we also have novel immunotherapies. So it's really important when you sit down and and meet with your physician and your team, your oncology care team, to really understand why are we picking these therapies? Or am I a candidate for other therapies based on what we've learned uh, from my cancer? So when somebody's diagnosed, we get a biopsy like Dr. Lowell mentioned, and it's critical to get a piece of the tissue to study it under the microscope. But even more importantly in 2022, is to understand the genomic alterations in the cancer itself. Because we now have multiple matched targeted therapies. So, if we identify a specific alteration, we may be able to match patients to specific pills that will have great activity as well as better tolerability profiles with that medication. So, in, in 2022, next generation sequencing of the tissue has become a critical uh, tool for the oncologist as well as the patient in helping match patients to the best possible therapy. Over the last four or five years, we've also seen a revolution in liquid biopsy. So liquid biopsy is really unique in that we don't actually take a piece of the tumor, but what we do is we take a blood test. The same way that you get a blood count or a a comprehensive panel, the liver or kidney test, we take about 10 cc's or 10 mL's of blood, and we're able to look in the blood itself. We're able to measure small fragments of DNA. Uh, and able to tell or identify what alterations are there. And the reason why plasma is so important, or, or liquid biopsy as we call it, is so important is because it's non-invasive, right? It's not a tissue biopsy, and also the turnaround time is quite quick. Uh, so for example, from a liquid biopsy, we're able to understand the genetic abnormalities in the cancer within five or seven days. Whereas opposed to a tissue biopsy, that result can often take three or four weeks. And we heard from Dr. Liu already why it may be so important to wait for all the information before we pick the correct treatment for our patients. So one other major benefit of plasma or liquid biopsy is that it can really define the heterogeneity of cancer. When we do a needle biopsy, we're able to understand specific abnormalities in that tumor, let's say a lung mass. But when we get a blood test, a liquid biopsy, we're able to assess not only the lung mass, but potentially other areas of the cancer, maybe a metastasis in the liver or a potential metastasis in the bone. And we know that over time, cancers can have different genomic alterations that may help predict or or, or let us know what therapies uh, might be more optimal uh, for patients. It's really important though to note that the actual liquid biopsy cannot give us the cell of origin or it cannot define the histology. So liquid biopsies should not replace a tissue biopsy. They should really sort of um, help sort of enhance it. So I actually am obtaining both tissue biopsy as well as a liquid biopsy and next-generation sequencing, looking for the genetic abnormalities in both the tissue as well as the liquid at the initial diagnosis. It's also a very helpful tool to assess you know, potential response to therapy. Although not yet approved, we are starting to look at you know, using liquid biopsy in conjunction with CT scans to potentially help us identify whether the fraction or the amount of tumor DNA in the blood is actually coming down with the correct treatment. And it can also help us identify potential resistance. I'll give you an example. A patient who I'm treating in the clinic who has a stage 4 lung adenocarcinoma with an EGFR mutation, which we'll talk a lot in a little bit, very common alteration, occurs in about 20 to 25 percent of our patients. And we match patients to a targeted therapy a small pill called Osimertinib, a third generation EGFR inhibitor that works quite well. And by testing the patient's blood, I was able to identify very early on that this patient was starting to develop a resistance mutation or a resistance mechanism with a different abnormality called MET or M-E-T. And we see this about 10 or 15% of the time. And this allowed us to transition treatment to get her disease back under better control. So liquid biopsies are not only helpful initially up front at defining the alteration, they can also be used you know, sort of sequentially throughout the course of treatment to help identify the heterogeneity of the tumor as well as potential resistance mutations or mechanisms. One really important point, though, to make about a liquid biopsy is that oftentimes it can be non-diagnostic. And what do I mean by that? Um, we draw blood and we don't identify any alteration in the blood. It doesn't mean that that test was negative, okay? It just means that it was non-diagnostic. And we really need to fall back and trust the tissue biopsy and the tissue NGS. And the example I often talk to patients about is if you go fishing in the ocean and you don't catch a fish, you wouldn't you know, wouldn't conclude that there is no fish in the ocean or that there are no fish in the ocean. That was just a bad day, that you didn't catch anything. And I think the same is with a liquid biopsy. When we draw the blood and we don't identify a genomic alteration, it doesn't mean that there is not one there. We really do need to fall back on uh, tissue NGS. So talking about genetic alterations, um, the key thing to take away here, and as Dr. Loa mentioned, These are not alterations that are inherited from mom and dad. We call those germline mutations. Those are alterations that we were born with and we can identify in all the cells in the body.
4: The alterations
3: that we're generally talking about are called somatic alterations, and these are alterations that are acquired from the environment. Uh, Could be from pollution, from smoking, from radon exposure, and many others that we may not even know but it's important that most genetic alterations that occur in lung cancer are truly environmental or somatic or acquired mutations. So it's critical when diagnosed to utilize your pathology report and to confer with a pathologist. So most of your medical oncology colleagues are in very close contact with a pathologist to discuss not only the histology or what the cancer looks like under the microscope, but we then take it to the next level where we defer to a molecular pathologist. This is a pathologist who then subspecializes in the genetic alterations of the cancer. And it's really important that, you know, when anyone diagnosed with a lung cancer that you identify and know what your mutation is. So anyone on the call listening who has lung cancer, next time you see your doctor or if you know it already, it's critical to ask that question, what is my mutation? Uh, and, and it's important that if your physician has not ordered the appropriate test, either a tissue biopsy and or a liquid biopsy, that they do it. And it's okay if it was not done upfront. There's no bad time uh, to get a tissue biopsy uh, NGS uh, test to look for a genetic alteration. I want to pivot uh, at ASCO, our American Society of Clinical Oncology um, International Conference that occurred just early on in June this past, uh, June, uh, where was it, Uh, May to late June in, in Chicago. We heard two major updates for patients with lung cancer with specific genetic alterations. The first one we heard about was in the EGFR space. So EGFR, or Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor, is responsible for making normal skin cells as well as lining uh, the gastrointestinal tract in the body. And we know that this is a commonly altered gene in patients with lung cancer. We see it in about 20 to 25% of patients, more commonly in younger patients, more commonly in folks who have not smoked or smoked very small amounts. And we can also see it at very high rates in uh, patients who are East Asian descent. So for example, In China, this alteration occurs at 40 to 50 percent of the population. Here in the United States, we see it in about 20 to 25 percent of patients. The reason identifying this alteration is so important is because we have great match targeted therapies where patients do very well for long periods of time with very minimal, if any, side effects. But when those medications stop working or patients develop acquired resistance, it's important to think about what the next level or next type of medicines are available. Standardly, in 2022, we use chemotherapy uh, in that setting, and chemotherapy works very well. However, you know, through clinical trials, through the development of new treatments for our patients, really with, with you guys on the phone you know, participating in these trials, we're able to develop the next generation of therapies that can then help those who come after us or even before us. So at ASCO 2022, we heard an update on a very novel combination of a medicine called amivantamab, which is an EGFR and MET inhibitor, M-E-T inhibitor. And the reason that's important is because MET could be an alteration that develops after being treated with that third-generation inhibitor called osimertinib or and what we saw at the conference was that folks did quite well when they received amivantamab plus a different third-generation inhibitor, and hopefully this will lead to further studies that will allow patients to do better and live longer with this type of cancer. Another major update that we heard at ASCO was for patients with KRAS mutations, or KRAS, and these are also relatively common alterations occurring in 25% of our patients. We specifically heard about KRAS-G12C, which is a subtype of KRAS, and this occurs in about 10 to 12% of our patients. And we thankfully have an FDA-approved drug called Sotorasib that's approved in patients who have growth of their cancer after chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And it's interesting, KRAS occurs more commonly in folks who are older more commonly in folks who have a history of cigarette smoking in the past and more commonly in the Caucasian patient population so far more common to see KRAS mutations in the United States versus in East Asia or China for that matter
4: now sotorasib
3: is now FDA approved in the second line setting and at ASCO 2022 uh, this you know early on in June we presented data for a new medicine called adagrasib which also now has shown to have activity in patients with this specific mutation, KRAS-G12C. But what was really exciting and I was fortunate to present is we showed that this drug, Adagrasiv, also had activity in patients with active and untreated brain metastases. And we know that brain metastases are a really um, uh, common um, sort of site of metastatic disease in our patient population. So again, to conclude, it's critical that you ask your physician, what is my mutation or what is driving my cancer? What is causing my cancer to tick? Because if we identify a specific alteration, we can potentially give you a whole other opportunity of potential targeted therapies. And I hope they convinced you that just using EGFR and KRAS, which are the common alterations, there are also many other alterations with matched targeted therapy. So with that, I'll conclude and I'll turn it back over to uh, Dr. Mesner. Oh, Thank you
1: so much, Dr. Safari. That was outstanding, really stellar, um, and really just a, a wonderful information for our participants to hear and to take in and to acknowledge that this is really very important for their care, and I look forward to, your, to the Q&A with um, you, you being on the Q&A. I'm sure there'll be many questions for you during the Q&A question and answer period. And our next speaker is Ms. Nikki Martin, and Ms. Martin is Senior Director of Precision Medicine Initiatives, Longevity Foundation, and Ms. Martin will be addressing the Longevity Foundation's free programs and services and provide you with contact information of how to reach them. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my partner organization um, and to um, Ms. Nikki Martin.
4: Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, Dr. Sabari and Dr. Liu, uh, for your excellent presentations on a complex science uh, for everyone listening. You really did a great job of... Distilling the information. Um, So, uh, Longevity Foundation is a nonprofit organization, um, and we have two goals. Uh, One goal is to improve outcomes for people diagnosed with lung cancer, and the other goal is to improve how people are living with lung cancer. And uh, a number of our programs and services are designed to help um, those people on the phone who have lung cancer and caregivers um, live better lives uh, with the disease, and our programs are free, um, and so I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. Um, We have a peer-to-peer support program uh, where someone with lung cancer or a caregiver can get connected to someone else who has already gone through your experience and been in your shoes, whether it's a diagnosis um, or the progression period, Uh, so I encourage you to reach out to to us to find out more and see if you can get connected to someone um, in your shoes. Also, we have a clinical trial finder where you can look for information about clinical trials, which we heard a little bit about today, which are the newest type of uh, precision medicine um, that might be available for you, and see if there is a clinical trial that works for your kind of lung cancer. Um, we also have a Lung Cancer 101 website that you can find within our website called Longevity. So it's Longevity.org, and I'm going to spell that out in case you're taking notes, .dot O-R-G. So if you go to longevity.org, you can find our Lung Cancer 101 content, and it's educational. It's going to explain to you everything from um, the diagnosis, um, a lot of the topics we've discussed today, treatment selection, um, and a lot of questions to ask your doctor. Um, On our website, you can also find a number of booklets, fact sheets, videos and uh, questions to ask your your doctor about specific areas of your care. Um, If you're looking for information regarding what we discussed today, genomic testing, um, you'll find that on our website, but you'll find it described as biomarker testing. That's the term that we use to describe this kind of testing that uh, non-small cell lung cancer patients uh, should have at diagnosis. So look for our booklets or fact sheets on biomarker testing, and it can help reinforce a lot of the learnings that you had today. Y estos materiales están disponibles en español también, so you can find them in Spanish as well. I hope you're able to locate them and and access them and read them. And the final thing I'll, I'll mention is that if you'd like to speak to someone directly, we have a lung cancer helpline. And this helpline has trained social workers who can answer questions, point you to other resources, for example, um, how to pay for different aspects of care if um, cost or out-of-pocket costs or insurance questions come up. And the phone line for the helpline is 1-844-360-5864. This is one 844 3605864 and uh that that is a good summary of our resources and i i hope that you're able to to tap into those as part of uh your experience uh with, with lung cancer getting diagnosed and finding a path uh to have to, to, to have a um you know a well supported experience with the disease thank you
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms Martin. That was really outstanding, and I do want to let everyone know that you will all be getting um, a Survey monkey evaluation at the end of today's program, and in that evaluation will be it'll be actually tomorrow you'll get it. and in that evaluation will be any a link or telephone numbers that we gave out today, so although you may have written them down, you'll get them again, and any other others that we think of would be helpful to you. but certainly Longevity Foundation is a wonderful resource for all of you to have, so that's really important. And I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, and um, Cancer Care is a national organization. And we provide a number of free programs and services provided by oncology social workers. And so, what are those services? Um, we do offer both practical, financial, and co payment assistance, which is very helpful to people at this time. Um, it always has been important to people. Um, Cancer is about 78 years old as an organization, and so these practical services and financial assistance have been very important, um, of course, for all of you um, on this call today. Um, we also offer, um, and when you call our Cancer Care Hope Line, um, it is answered by oncology social workers, and so you'll speak to the oncology social worker. Usually people um, identify the question or concern, and then they are given all the other services we offer. So we do offer online support groups. Um, we do offer support, chance to talk with an oncology social worker about your concerns and questions. We do offer coping circles, which are groups in which we, which, uh, which are led by oncology social workers and discuss different issues that people may be coping with. Um, we also do have um, case management services. So if we don't have the service that you need, we will connect you to the service that you acquire, that you need. Sometimes it has to do with food insecurity or the cost of just food or the cost of your rent or mortgage or housing issues and other issues like that that we don't offer ourselves that we will virtually take you to a resource either in your location, in your, in your city, in your region, or in the, nationally that can help you. All three of the above will help you with those concerns. We also do have a pet assistance program for people who may have a cat or a dog, and because of their um, treatment or their cancer, they're not able to actually um, either walk their dog or change the litter box or purchase food for their cat or dog, and so we help with all of those things as well. And there are many other services that you'll be able to access from Cancer Care, and for those of you who are international on the call, you'll be able to visit our website and also see the services there, and if we we will then provide you with resources in your country that we can that we can refer you to as well. So with that being said, we now have time for questions. And I'm going to ask um, uh, uh, Cody to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Cody?
0: Thank you. And if you would like to ask a question over the phones, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. A voice prompt on your phone line will indicate when your line has been opened. At that point, please state your first name and last initial before posing your question. If your question has been answered, you may press star two to remove yourself from the queue. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking the Ask a Question box.
1: We have a question um, for Dr. Sabaro. Um, could you discuss metastasis to the brain from non-small cell lung cancer? I was on test for nine years when I developed a brain lesion, had stereotactic radiation, and now on Degresso.
3: This is a great question. So, you know, brain metastases are quite common uh, in lung cancer, particularly in folks with lung adenocarcinoma. Uh, In patients with EGFR mutations, we see this in upwards of 40 or 50% of patients over the course of their disease. In patients with KRAS mutations, we see this in about you know 30 to 40% of patients uh, with uh, um, this type of disease. And
4: it's critical,
3: um, first off, to recognize and identify these alterations or these, these lesions in the brain, and, and getting a brain MRI is a critical screening uh, measure. So in all patients newly diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, part of the staging is, in, is getting a brain MRI. Now, it's not common to get brain MRIs thereafter, but in patients with EGFR mutations or specific driver alterations, I do get you know, routine surveillance MRIs of the brain because we know that the brain can be an area of concern. Now, if you're having symptoms, nausea, vomiting, vision changes, headache, that's critical that you tell your healthcare team, uh, and that will generate or allow you to obtain an MRI of the brain anytime during your course. You don't have to wait for your next interval scans. And the reason why identifying brain metastasis are so important is not all therapies work the same in the brain. So the question of Tarceva, which is a first-generation EGFR inhibitor, an older medication, the drug works very well in the chest and the liver and the bone. However, it does not penetrate the brain tissue that well. And we know that there's a blood-brain barrier that prevents a lot of medicines from entering the brain whereas osimertinib, a third-generation EGFR inhibitor, enters the brain significantly better. Uh, And and I'm happy to hear that you are then matched to the correct therapy, uh, which is osimertinib, and now we're having response in the brain. Also critical in patients with brain metastasis, if it's one lesion, surgery remains a good option for that lesion, particularly in patients with an EGFR mutation where we have other therapies which will keep disease under control for long periods of time. More commonly, though, we're using stereotactic radiosurgery or some form of local radiation therapy to the brain. Whole brain radiation is something that we try to avoid and really is only utilized if there are multiple lesions. Let's say for the sake of this discussion, 10, 15, or more. So, in anybody who's identified to have brain lesions or brain metastases, it's really important to talk to your oncologist and really to have a sort of um, multidisciplinary team, which may include a radiation doctor, as well as a neurologist or even a neuro-oncologist. But again, critical to understand which medicines work in the brain and which ones don't. And as part of our development of new therapies, brain activity is one of those critical areas that we're continuing to develop. Uh, for our patients.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That's a a really wonderful answer to a great question, so thank you. Um, And another question for you, Dr. Sabari, if I didn't test positive for any mutations, does that mean I am not eligible for targeted therapy?
3: That's a great question. Uh, So not all patients are identified to have a specific alteration. You know, 40% of patients do not have uh, a specific alteration that we can target. Um, And that's where we generally think about using more immunotherapy or chemotherapy in combination with immunotherapy. And immunotherapy revs up the immune system to better recognize and attack the cancer. But you know, as we continue to learn more about genomic or genetic alterations and as our tests improve, I do recommend getting testing over time. So if you were diagnosed two, three years ago and we did not identify any genetic alteration in the blood or the tissue, it might be worthwhile to go back to that initial sample and retest it. But if you've had adequate or sufficient testing and we did not identify a mutation, you may truly not have a mutation. And, and correct, if we don't identify a mutation, targeted therapy is not going to be an effective strategy for your cancer. It's almost like a lock and key model, right? If you have that specific mutation, that's the patient who would benefit most from that, you know, targeted therapy.
1: And another question that related, uh, I tested negative for EGFR and KRAS mutation, but positive
3: for EML for ELK. What does that mean? Yeah, so that's a great question. So EGFR and KRAS are the two most common alterations, but there are many other alterations that we can identify. So ALK is a fusion, and it occurs in 3 to 5% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. And we do have specific match-targeted therapies for patients with an ALK fusion. The most commonly prescribed medication is electinib. And again, it works very well, both in the chest and other places of the body, as well as the brain. But just to note that there are many other alterations, such as ROS1, BRAF, RET, MetExon14, and Ntrec. And more recently, about six months ago, uh, we learned of a new fusion, uh, PLTK. So there are many, many different alterations that we can identify. So it's important to ask your doctor, uh, have I done full genetic testing? So having or identifying the ALK fusion definitely predicts good response to an ALK inhibitor.
1: Excellent. And here's a question, are there drugs for KRAS mutation or only clinical trials?
3: It's a great question. So there is one FDA approved therapy for patients with KRAS G12C and that's Sotoracib, and that was approved now about six, seven months ago. Um, There's a new medicine coming down the pike pretty, you know, close. It's going to be approved most likely in December of 2022 called Adagracib, but there are 10 or 12 therapies being developed in this setting, And, and this is a really exciting time for patients because KRAS mutations have, you know, historically been, quote, unquote, undruggable. And now we have therapies that work and are effective in this patient population. A common question I get in the clinic is, I have a KRAS mutation, but I don't have KRAS G12C. Can I still use a KRAS G12C inhibitor? And that's the same concept of that lock and key. The KRAS G12C medicines, sotorasib and Adagrasib only work well in patients who have a KRAS G12C mutation. So, if you have a KRAS G12D mutation or a G12V or G12A, we are working on developing new therapies. So, those are really only available on clinical trials in 2022, but I hope in the near future we'll have more therapies approved for for you.
1: Excellent. This is really very inspiring and very very helpful to our participants to hear this. Um, So, is genetic testing a routine part of diagnosis and staging at all cancer centers?
3: So, you know, in 2022, it is standard of care to obtain at least tissue, uh, NGS, next generation sequencing. Different centers do different depths, right? So it's how, how big of a hole or how deeply are you gonna dig to find that answer? Some people go three feet, some people go 12 feet, some people go 50 feet deep, thinking about how to find or interrogate this cancer. So, you know, it's important that when you get tested at your center, ask the physician that he's treating or the physician team, what mutations did we test for? Are there any mutations that we may have missed? You know, outside the United States, next generation sequencing is still not commonly performed and people are getting piecemeal testing. And Dr. Luo had mentioned immunohistochemistry or PCR-based assays where we look for specific genetic alterations, but not all genetic alterations. Most testing done here in the United States is looking at a broad array of genetic alterations, but it's important to ask, what test are you doing, and is this test going to look for all genetic alterations in my cancer?
1: Excellent. Um, And um, so which test should
3: I be on the lookout um, to ask for? So you want to do a broad panel, next-generation sequencing test of both the DNA and the RNA. And there are many commercial tests that are available that do that, like Foundation Medicine or CARIS, for example. And then there are also many academic centers, such as ours, who do them internally at our own institution. But it's critical to ask that you're obtaining a broad panel, next-generation sequencing test
1: Excellent. And, um, and uh, Ms. Martin, does Longevity Foundation help people to locate centers near them that are centers of excellence for lung cancer? Could you comment on that? The non-small cell lung cancer.
4: Um, we could definitely point patients to like the closest uh, center of excellence, I guess, uh, that that is aligned with maybe best practices, Um, so so yes, we we can do that. And we can also, like I said, said, make suggestions for questions to ask your provider um, based on where you are in your um, care journey um, to ensure that you're receiving the best possible care. If you need to seek out a second opinion, um, there may be times when uh, we can help provide you with tips on, on how to either do that through your own network of providers or if you need to go seek out another provider in a, in a different hospital or health system to seek out a second opinion because uh, we do know that certain patients do have a t- trouble accessing biomarker testing um, from their first provider, um, especially the complete level of biomarker testing, um, genomic testing, comprehensive uh, biomarker testing and so if that's the case, you will definitely want to seek out a second opinion, and we could, we could help uh, put you on the right path to do that.
1: Excellent. And I'm going to ask both of our speakers just to give um, some takeaway for today's program. So I'm going to ask Dr. Sabari to go first. And just, um, just a sentence or so, just a, a what you, you'd like people to take away from today's program, Dr. Sabari.
3: I think the key thing to take away from today is that there is a lot of hope. Um, that there are many new therapies being developed, Um, even, you know, on a monthly, yearly basis. We're seeing new treatments uh, enter the clinic and significantly benefiting our patients. Uh, We're also looking at therapies that can penetrate deeper and better in the body, like the brain, uh, and also really focusing on treatments that have, you know, better side effect profiles and, and focusing really on quality of life, really moving away from conventional chemotherapies, which, just kill any cells that are dividing quickly. We're really trying to target the cancer cells specifically. Uh, So knowing what genetic alteration you have in your cancer is going to be critical as an opportunity for you to benefit from these advances moving forward.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And um, Ms. Martin, do you want to comment as well?
4: I just echo what Dr. Savari said. Um, It is so true that uh, with the right testing, to identify your, your specific type of lung cancer. Um, there are so many important advancements being made in the science to get you an advanced new treatment um, that's really specific to you and your type of lung cancer. And so that to me is, is, the, key, um, is the key takeaway. And, and I just highly encourage you to reach out to cancer care, reach out to Longevity. Um, there are other patient advocacy groups as well Um, We are here to support you and to support your caregivers, and uh, we have resources to do that. So um, please do reach out to us.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal today. And I want to thank also our participants for asking such really great questions. Uh, We have done this program. This is part three of a three-part series, but really the questions have been phenomenal on our speakers' responses have been phenomenal as well. So what a great, great program and and lots of hope for those who are on the program today. However, I do want to acknowledge that there, we could go on for another hour. Um, We said this would be an hour program and that we, um, so we do have to kind of wrap this up, but I do want to acknowledge those people who either asked a question, have a question that is, is in queue that we didn't get to, or who has a question that they'd like to ask. We'd like you to take your questions and what you've learned today back to treating healthcare team. They, of course, know you the best. They have your medical records in front of them. And you also have learned things that you can um, ask your speakers in a different way, your questions. So please do um, use your healthcare team um, as a resource as well. And also, um, you know, there are times when people do seek out a second opinion and Based on the program today, you've learned information, and you can decide whether you wish to seek a second opinion. You also have the resources of the Longevity Foundation, which are really quite superb, and you also have access support from Cancer Care, and we will be providing other organizations that can give you credible and helpful information um, as well. Most importantly, we don't want anyone to leave today's program feeling that you are alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support and we are here to help you. Again, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and I want to thank you all for participating in this program today.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.